you know, I realize that in life there are just certain subjects that very few of us get excited about. You know, think of like math or grammar. I mean, who likes grammar? Or colon health. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, this is just not the top of our list of interests in life. And there are certain activities or tasks that, uh, that no one in their right mind looks forward to. I mean, I like a, a flower bed without weeds, but I don't like weeding. I like having enough money at the end of the month, but no one likes writing a budget. Certainly no one likes getting a colonoscopy. But these things are necessary, aren't they? They're necessary. They all have value. Uh, but often we don't see their, 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 their value, their real value, until we fail to give them the attention that they deserve. Theology is like that. You know, you mention that word, and people's eyes glaze over. They're just like, oh, no. But they shouldn't. You shouldn't. There is nothing more important than theology. Think about it this way for a moment. Considering the fact that this life and the stuff of this life, it is a mere blink of the eye. And it will be over and we will spend all of eternity living with the repercussions of our theology. In that sense, I can't think of anything that we should be more invested in, more engaged in, than in thinking through theology. Now, understand this when I talk about theology. Geography. Geography is not the study of what people think about places. How you feel about Detroit has nothing to do with geography. Zoology isn't the study of popular opinions about animals, okay? If you think a koala bear would be a great pet, that has nothing to do with zoology. And theology isn't about what people believe about God. It's about what is actually true about God. Each of these areas of study, they are founded on truth, on fact, on reality. And here's the thing, and it's kind of startling that we would have to even cover this, but truth matters. Reality matters. Do you understand this? Relativism is science fiction. No one lives according to a relativistic worldview. We live with reality. Inaccurate or fanciful physics crash airplanes. Bad geometry collapses buildings, but wrong theology is the worst of all. It warps our understanding of God. It hinders us in, in, in coming into relationship with God, and it can even lead us to an eternity in hell. Theology matters. And it's my aim to convince you that not only does it matter, it's not boring. It's not boring. In fact, actually, 
Good theology is the thing that unlocks everything that is wonderful about what we have just been enjoying here this morning together. It is good theology that gives us joy. It is good theology that gives us freedom. It is good theology that gives us peace and confidence. It's good theology that frees us from from that tendency that we have to get locked into to man-made religion, to this works-based mentality of what I've got to do and, and what I've got to accomplish. It's good theology that points us to Christ and to what it is that he's done. And that isn't boring. That's freeing. Well, this morning, our passage out of Luke chapter 23, it contains the end of the account of Jesus's death on the cross. And last week, last week, we looked at the the physical and the historical reality of the cross. But this week, this week, we're going to look at it from just a slightly different angle. And I want us to look and consider the theological meaning of the death of Jesus. So will you do this? Will you please stand with me? You know how it goes. I'll read our passage. You can follow along in your own Bible. It's in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to pick up in verse 44. Luke 23, verse 44. Here's what Luke writes. He says, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that you promised that that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. And Lord, I ask that, that you would teach us this morning. God, that you would take your word and that you would open our minds to it and and make our hearts receptive to it. And God, that, that, that we would understand what it is that you have laid out here for us. And God, that we would be changed by that. And that we would go out different than we came in. And God, we pray that, that you would do a lasting work within us this morning. That it wouldn't just be a flash in the pan. It wouldn't just be a, a, a moment of agreement with you. But it would be the beginning of a, a change, of course, of a deeper understanding of a greater appreciation for what it is that you have done for us. Work that in us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. There's so much that we could focus on here in this passage. As I said last week, we looked at the physical, the historical reality of the cross. And that's important, isn't it? That we understand that the things that we read about 
with the crucifixion of Jesus, they actually took place physically. This isn't mythology. This isn't an analogy. This is something that took place in reality and that is recorded and verified by history. This is not just man's religion. This is reality. Today, though, I, I want us to focus on the theological meaning of the cross. I want us to consider what these things that, that took place, what do they mean? How do they impact our lives today? Why does it matter that, that over 2,000 years, imagine that. We are talking about something that took place over 2,000 years ago. You don't do that often. Why is it that this thing that happened then is so, is so important to us today? The God in human flesh willingly and purposefully died on a brutal Roman cross there in the province of Judea. Well, it does matter greatly. And I think that the, the details that Luke gives us in this passage, I think they're subtle hints at some of the great theological truths of the gospel. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. So let's begin there in verse 44, where Luke tells us that about noon, darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. Now understand this, this is not a lunar eclipse of the sun. That isn't it. In fact, skeptics will actually often point to this passage and say, oh, it's one of the many errors in the Bible. No, the error is in their thinking. This is not a lunar eclipse. We know that because it happened at Passover, and that's what they point out. So Passover, the date of Passover is set by the occurrence of a full moon. Now, I don't know if you've thought this through before or not, but you cannot have a full moon when the moon fully reflects the light of the sun to us and a solar eclipse where the moon fully eclipses the light of the sun from us. You can't have those two things at the same time. And so you can't have a lunar eclipse at Passover. This is not, nor does it ever say that it is an astronomical event. Yes, we get the word eclipse from uh, the word there that, uh, that describes to us that the, the light of the sun failed. But it never says lunar. This is not a lunar eclipse this is a supernatural eclipse it's as if god looked down from heaven and saw what was going on there at calvary saw that it was so dark so truly awful that the lord felt it appropriate to dim the lights so what was going on there at calvary well it was there on the cross that Jesus was taking all of God's wrath that was aimed at my sin. And we've read this passage many times, but I want you to slow down for a moment and to really hear what the prophet Isaiah tells us that the Messiah was going to do. There in Isaiah 53, 5, he says of the Messiah that he was pierced, speaking of the crucifixion, 
because of our rebellion. That he was crushed because of our iniquities. That the punishment for our peace, that the only way for us to have peace was laid on him. You see, Jesus bore God the Father's untempered, unrestrained wrath against my sin. He took what I deserved. And that's why in Mark 15, uh, we read that from the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You see, it was because of my sin that God the Father turned away from his son and Jesus experienced the darkness of utter isolation from all that was good, including complete separation from God the Father. <coughs> you and I, we have lived so much of our life experiencing separation from God that I don't think we can fathom what that must have been like for Jesus. The eternal son who had been in perfect communion, perfect fellowship with the father from all eternity past to take upon himself my sin to experience what I deserved, banishment from God. He took what I deserved. What we call that theologically is substitutionary atonement. Here's how salvation works. The consequence, or as Paul puts it, the wages of sin is death. Meaning that if you or if I if we have to pay for our own sin, it will be the end of us. And so because he loves us that much, Jesus took our place. He took our place because he's, he's good. He's true. I know that, that we're good. We have degraded it substantially from the biblical thought on good. You know, we'll talk about good. Well, how was dinner? It was good. It's passable. Don't ever say that to your wife. It was great. <laughs> that was amazing. But when the Bible says good, it means in the ultimate sense, in the absolute sense. Because God is truly good, absolutely good, because of that, his justice demands, and he would not be good if this were not true, his justice demands that all sin be punished. Now, I am fairly comfortable with God punishing your sin, but it makes me uncomfortable to think about God punishing mine. And yet, because God is genuinely good, all sin must be judged. And yet, because he is good, his love is so great that it moved him to rescue us, to take our place, 
to redeem us from the consequence of our sin. And all that we have to do is put our faith in him, in what he did in order to receive this gift. And the darkness that day reminds us of that. Reminds us of Christ's substitutionary atonement. Look at the second part of verse 45 says the curtain of the sanctuary. That's talking about the, the inner room of the temple. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. So there in the, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was this immensely thick curtain that, that closed off, that blocked the entry to the Holy of Holies, that, that most inner room of the temple where the presence of God was made physically manifest and where because of man's sin and God's holiness, only the high priest was allowed to enter and only for a moment and only once a year and only after special cleansing and sacrifices. But when Jesus made sacrificial atonement for our sin, he opened the way for us to be with God, to be in fellowship with God. When he forgave us and cleansed us, it made possible us to actually come into relationship with God. This thing that we just did is we take time to worship and as we, we sing our praise to the Lord, and what are we longing for more than anything else but to, to be aware of God's presence with us? Oh, I just want to come into the presence of God. If you or I were to say that to one of our Old Testament brothers or sisters, they think, what are you, nuts? You want to be vaporized? I mean, you can't just come into the presence of God. That will be the end of you. And yet because of Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, he has opened the way. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, it is God who has tore down the curtain that symbolized the barrier that keeps us from the Father. Notice this, Matthew 27 tells us this, that this curtain was torn not from the bottom up as if it had been done by the, by the hand of man and the works of man, but it was torn from the top down because it is God himself who has opened the way. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, there where he says that since we, we now have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, not, not based upon our own righteousness, or our own works, but because of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. That gets a little bit, it, 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 it's a messy Analogy, isn't it? To think of passing through the flesh in the context of the crucifixion. That's what it's talking about. It's because of what Christ suffered on the cross that we are now able to enter in to the very presence of God. And he says, let us draw near with a, a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, it is through Jesus, because of his sacrifice in our place, that you and I, that any of us, understand this, any of us can come 
confidently and not confident in ourselves, but confident in what it is that the Savior has done, what Jesus did, knowing that our relationship with God has been restored by and in Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. God has taken that broken relationship, this relationship that was messed up, it was broken. If you're married, you know what a broken relationship is like, right? You've had that moment with your spouse where things are broken. Communication can't happen. Care can't happen. And there has to be a healing there. There has to be a restoration that takes place. And what Paul is saying is God did that for us. We were incapable of it. But God did that for us. He reconciled us to himself. How? Through Christ. Through Christ. And then Paul goes on. By the way, Paul goes on to remind us of what it is that we are here for, what it is that our lives are supposed to be about now that we are reconciled, he says, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You, you have a call to ministry. You have a task that you have been given. You are a minister of reconciliation between man and God. What does that mean? Well, he says that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. You have good news to deliver. He says, this is the message of reconciliation that he has given us to deliver to this world. That God is offering forgiveness, cleansing, relationship to we who are so undeserving. The tearing of the curtain reminds us that Jesus has reconciled us to God and it reminds us that he's given us a job to do while we wait for him to return. Look at verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice. He called out with a loud voice in this, this loud cry. Uh, John 19.30 tells us it, it was the word to tell us that. Now, that's a Greek word. He probably called out in Aramaic, but it was recorded in the Greek language. But this word to tell us die, it's a word that is an accounting term, and it means paid in full. So in regards to this work of redemption that Jesus is accomplishing, in regards to our salvation, to this thing that he is doing and reconciling us, us with God, it is as if Jesus took this big rubber stamp and just marked it, paid in full, completed. There is nothing left for us to contribute to the task. It is a work that is finished, that is complete. And then Luke tells us that Jesus prayed, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Do you understand what's going on there? I mean, this is incredible. Jesus, Jesus says, and now I die. But he isn't just feeling it coming and guessing that it's soon. Here, even in death, Jesus is 
fully in control. Fully in control. He is not a victim being executed. What a contrast between him and the, uh, the man on his right and the man on his left. Uh, they were both victims, uh, guilty victims, I'm sure. They had no control. Their lives were being taken from them violently, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. He is not a victim being executed. He is a savior doing his work. He is a savior accomplishing our salvation. And in doing so, in order to do so, he now surrenders his life. He entrusts his spirit to God the Father. I want you to notice two things here. First, I want you to notice this, that Jesus' body dies, but he does not cease. Jesus' body dies, but he does not cease. And you and I, we're the same. We're the same. Our fleshly bodies, they are weak and they are growing weaker all the time. Isn't that true? If you're over 30, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you always wondered what that, uh, what that phrase, over the hill, meant. <laughs> and now that you are picking up speed on the downhill side, you get it, right? <laughs> At some point, Our bodies go from failing to failed, and they quit, <laughs> sometimes one part at a time, <laughs> until we come to the point where we die physically. But understand this, know this, that is not the end, not for anyone, not for anyone. Every human being that you've ever met, every, every person that you have ever seen is an eternal being. That's why theology matters so much. Because what we decide now in this life theologically, what we choose theologically to to shape and to direct our lives will determine our eternity. We are given the choice. We can, we can choose to submit ourselves to Christ to receive uh, the free gift of salvation, or we can reject him. And we can choose to stand before God for our sin ourselves. Just so you know, the Bible tells us how that will go, and it's not good. That will not go well for you. Turn to Christ. Surrender to Christ. Put your faith in him. Christ dies, but he does not cease to exist. Secondly, notice that Jesus chooses all of this. He chooses all of this. He chooses to give up his life. He willingly entrusts his spirit to God. And that is exactly how he told his disciples it was going to go. Uh, think back to John chapter 10. 
And there Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is what I choose, Jesus says. He says, I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. Think about that for a minute. And think about what this means. Hey, not just about Jesus, but think about what this means about you and Jesus. Understand this. Jesus was not trapped into doing this. His hand wasn't forced. You ever been in that situation where you had to do something you didn't really want to do? Say, okay, I'll do this for you, but I don't really want to. That was not, that was not the attitude of Jesus toward you. Jesus did not look at you and say, well, yeah, I, I, I'm Jesus, so I have to go to the cross. And, you know. No, no, Jesus looked at you and he chose the cross. He chose it not because it was attractive, not because he wanted it, but because he wanted to spare you from it. When we see here Jesus fully in charge, fully in control, choose to lay down his life, to entrust his spirit to God, it should remind us that our Savior chose to save us. Look at the second half of verse 46. Saying this, he breathed his last. When Luke made this statement, they crucified him. I found it stunning just how understated that is. Do you realize what we just read? That God in human flesh that the creator and the sustainer of all breathed his last. I, I can't comprehend. I don't understand it. All I can do is accept it. He yielded his body to death and in doing so purchased us for God. That was the price that was paid for our redemption. You and I, you and I, we were in debt up to our eyeballs for sin. We were indebted by sin far beyond our ability to redeem ourselves. As Romans 6.23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. To pay the bill ourselves would be the end of us. But the gift of God, what Jesus did there upon the cross is to give us eternal life in Christ Jesus. We were indebted beyond hope, but at the pouring out of his blood, now, that phrase, that by the blood of Christ or the pouring out of his blood, what that's talking about is his life being expended, him surrendering his life, his, his death in our place. It, Jesus gave up his life so that ours would not be taken. 
that that was the price of our redemption. Ephesians 1.7 puts it this way, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You know, we were not only forgiven for our debt, but God doesn't leave it there. He takes it further. God's word tells us that God not only forgave us, but then he declared us innocent. Now, those are two different things. You, you understand that, right? And when I forgive you, I acknowledge that, yeah, you are a lowlife who actually did that. But then God looks at us and he takes it beyond forgiveness. Romans 5, 9 says we have now been justified by his blood. It is again by the blood of Jesus, by his death in our place that we are credited with the righteousness of Christ. Again, my mind, my mind cannot comprehend this. I, I can't understand this, how me, how I can be credited with the true goodness of my Savior. And yet it is by the blood. And it's because of his death, his blood, uh, that purchased our redemption and our justification uh, that we can have peace with God. Colossians 1.20. We have peace, peace with God, through his blood shed on the cross. Now understand this. If you, if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, understand this. You no longer need to fear condemnation. No more, no, no more fear of condemnation. You no longer need to fear rejection. You no longer need to fear that you don't measure up because it is by the blood of Christ that you have peace with God. Your failures, my failures, they are redeemed. And our acceptance, our acceptance by God Almighty is based upon justification that is paid for by the blood, by the death of our Savior. And as a result of that, as a result of that, you and I who honestly have no right to even approach God, we are welcome to come near to him. We are invited in, welcomed into his presence because of the blood of Jesus. Ephesians chapter two, you who were far away, not geographically, relationally, spiritually, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We had no right to even enter his presence and yet he invites us in and wraps us up. Acts 20, 28 tells us that we have been purchased with his blood. There on the cross, when the Savior gave up his life, his, his blood was poured out, he purchased us. He purchased us. Finally, look at verse 47. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. 
all the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle. This was not a good thing. They had come to see the show. But when they saw what had taken place, they went home striking their chests, grieved. Now, now certainly this centurion had supervised the crucifixion of many victims. You understand this, don't you? Jesus was not the only one crucified. Rome crucified many. In fact, even on the day of Christ's crucifixion, two others were with him. It was a group deal. Yet somehow, somehow there was, there was something very different about Jesus. And we're not told uh, what it was that this pagan man saw that, uh, that got his attention. And maybe he had known of Jesus before that day, but I, I don't think that's likely. It could have been the way that he saw Jesus responding to his enemies. Back in verse 34, remember that? Praying that God would forgive them even as they crucified him. Maybe it was the mercy that he showed to that undeserving criminal who hung by his side. Do you remember that? That encounter with the, the man on the cross next to him? Maybe this centurion was overawed by the supernatural darkness that, uh, that occurred. Or maybe it was the way that Jesus commanded even the very moment of his death. I don't know. Something, something caused a, a very unusual response from this centurion. I doubt that this guy normally walked away having a high regard for the men that he had been executing. But Jesus was different, very different. Somehow this hardened soldier found his eyes open to a reality that honestly I think was greater than he had the ability to comprehend. Here, this, this soldier declared that Jesus was righteous. And, you know, we don't really know what he meant by that. Matthew and Mark both tell us that he also said that this man was truly the son of God. But, you know, honestly, that phrase spoken by a polytheistic Roman, it meant much less than if it had been spoken by a monotheistic Jew. But maybe the Lord revealed something to this guy. Maybe God showed him that Jesus truly was not just a good man, but an absolutely righteous man, completely without sin, faultless. Maybe the Lord showed him that Jesus really was the fully divine son of God, an eternal member of the Trinity, fully God and fully man. Maybe in that moment, he saw Jesus for exactly who he was. Maybe in that moment, he saw that Jesus was the perfect and the only sacrifice for all our sin. I don't know. All I know is that Jesus is the truly righteous, fully divine Son of God, and that he is the only and the perfect sacrifice for all my sin. That's what God's word tells us. First Peter chapter one, Peter writes, he says this, for you know that you were redeemed, purchased, bought, rescued 
from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. You were purchased, you were redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, him laying down his life like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. And so the centurion reminds us that though Jesus shared our humanity, he did not share our sinfulness. But he took it upon himself. He bore the punishment for my sin in my place. So many details, so much good, solid theology that should shape how we relate to God, that should form how it is that we understand that, that all of this works. Uh, the darkness should remind us uh, that, that there on the cross, Christ made atonement. He, he took our place. He was our substitute. And he took the wrath of God that we so deserve. The torn curtain, the torn curtain should cause us to celebrate. It should remind us that the God has reconciled us to himself, that Jesus has opened the way that we can enter into God's presence. And Jesus, Jesus, letting go of his spirit, entrusting his spirit to God reminds us that that he chose this. He chose to pay the ultimate price, not because he had to, but because he loves us. His death, his death should remind us that we are redeemed, we have been purchased, we have been bought, we have been paid for, and the price has been paid in full for us. And the centurion, the centurion reminds us that Jesus is like no other. The divine son of God, the eternal God who became our sacrifice. So we worship him. You stand with me. Let's worship him together. Father, God, I thank you that we get to be here. We get to do this. Uh, Jesus, I thank you that we get to worship you for what you have done. I, I pray that, God, you would awaken our hearts. God, as we have, we have read of what it is that you chose to do for us, what you willingly embraced because you love us, God, that that would, that would awaken our hearts. God, that we would have just an unstoppable desire to worship you, to thank you, to praise you. And God, that we would go out from here serving you, representing you, fulfilling that ministry of reconciliation. So charged by what it is that we have experienced in being able to come to you that we would want everyone to have what we have. Work that in us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name.